This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trav. This is Rich. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. Your podcast of being a regular Joe until the lit shows up. And then you get to be awesome if you yes. got the guts. And if you're not awesome, your guts will be all over the place. What's the one movie? Want blood and gore and beans in my teeth? I eat one. Honey, dead little rat bodies want to kill. Yeah. Wow. This week we are talking about courage. What business does it have in your role-playing game? What helps it? What hurts it? Why does anybody want it to have it? Uh, to have it? Uh, because after all, this is all about winning, isn't it? You don't win in role-playing games. <laughs> sure you do. You live, right? Isn't that winning? Yeah. It's existing. <laughs> so we've talked about a lot of different things. Why don't we try to pull this together um, based on our conversation, which is how to promote courageous play. You know, assuming that you think the courageous play is a good thing to have in your game, you know, even if it works, sometimes seems to be to the detriment of the group goals, what things do you think would help encourage people to play courageously? Okay, and uh, I, I don't know if it was you or, uh, or Trav, uh, John, who was talking about um, the idea of, of, of you're, you're doing it, you know, for the team. So therefore, you know, if you, if you make a goal of your group to build camaraderie and character loyalty, to me that sounds like it would encourage people to have courageous play because they yeah. they know that they, they their team was backing them up you know even when they did something that was outside their comfort zone yeah i mean i i yeah i totally agree yes having a good you know good working team means that when the chips are when the chips are chips down you can count on your comrades to help help you you know make it through so yeah like i said you can have that uh, case where the other players help uh, you, you, you basically help other players being courageous by, you know, well, by screwing up sometimes or being the person they need to take care of. I um, mean, that's, but also being proving useful in other areas. So, yes, I'm not the gun bunny. I'm not the brick, but I'm the guy who can schmooze the con into giving me, you know, sending his daughter with me back to, back to earth prime so she can uh, get a proper education, you know, <laughs> so that that's where I'm important. You know, I'm the face person. So, yeah. 
just because I hadn't, they had to get in the get in the back of the truck, and we got to drive out of town because, well, I also got in trouble with the pr- Kitcon's daughter, also. But that's another thing. Uh, <laughs> no, but but yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I did post some some ideas of things like you know being courageous because sometimes you're the guy with the with the key, and you find a world with. Fringe-worthy monsters. They're not Mellor, but they're just almost just as bad. And you know what? You have to keep them off the. Pl- you got to keep them off the portals. And the only way to do it is for someone to go and lock the lock it from the other side. Trouble is, you're being chased by said monsters. So it's not the courageous thing is not actually holding the portal. It's going through the portal and locking your friends in the other side, knowing that they're not going to make it through. Because <laughs> you because you have to live with knowledge. <laughs> Oh yes, and that's the more courageous thing. That's what that's what I said. Sometimes you know, dying is easy. It's living that's the hard part. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My so, thought is, courage comes from the heart, and yep. the heart of the player, the heart of the character, and mm-hmm. also really good rewards help. Yeah, you need that carrot. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, what you're saying, Richard. So, therefore, if in order to be, um, you know, if you in order to overcome fear, you have to know what your character is afraid of. So, having a good character background with with clear motivation, um, I think, you know, do you think that would help um, encourage courageous play? It might. Also depends on the player. And that also means the GM letting you create that backstory. You know, some GMs get really, really, really protective of, of their worlds, and you can't make any changes to it. I've gotten to the point now where I say, okay, here's my sketch. Help me fill it in. You know, give me details. And they're the player details, and that gives them agency. That gives them a reason to be courageous because it's not because I told them they came from they came from they came from Bag End. No, they created Bag End themselves, and they put and they created the people who lived there, and that gives them a reason to, to go back there and you know fight off Saruman as he tries to you know you know at least have one last gasp at controlling something other than you know his you know his bowel movements. <laughs> You know, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's. I think I think player agency is a real important thing here. Is letting the players help you make your world, you create background, create reasons for them to care about what happens in that world. You know, it's 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 all well and good to go playing Greyhawk. It's much better if you make your own Greyhawk and you do it with the help of your friends. Oh yeah, shared world. Shared homebrew, well, even a shared world as far as an established setting, that's buy-in. That means you got, let's say you have Greyhawk and you have, oh, the Duchy of Ernst. And there is a particular part of the Duchy of Ernst that you want to role-play in. And within the confines of the general setting, you still set up rules that they are your own, yet they still fit with it. You, you know where the wood walls on the sandbox are let's say, you still have the ability to all of you, you know, the game master and all the players input stuff, and it's your world despite it being an established setting. Now, I have my own setting, Guadria, which I've made up, and I the players, because this is like my third group that is using the setting, 
they've all thrown in their little things as part of the history. It's part of their backgrounds, but the backgrounds of the characters have made it enough where it's become part of the setting history. Because a few of them are kind of long-lived, so they said, yeah, you know, 400 years ago I did this, and okay, we wrote it into the the setting story. So yeah, backgrounds can help enhance a setting, whether it is homebrew or established. I mean, I ran a game recently over at uh, GameStorm where I basically I put down the map, I drew a, a, a watchtower, I drew a border, I drew a road, I drew a river and a lake, and then the player sat down and said, okay, fill in the map. And let them and let the players put things on the map, you know, for the city of, of the city of Lancaster. Okay. And 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 yeah, it helped. It actually it gave me a lot of plot hooks to play with in that game. I actually had some things planned out, but hey, I can adapt this. I can adapt this event to fit this this new setting they got over here, and I can and and there was a whole lot of buy-in. And every time I ran to an NPC, I asked him who it was, let them define the NPC. <laughs> And we had a great time. They had, you know, they had a great, a major end, ending battle in this in that adventure. So yeah, it was it was great, and it was and a lot of the detail came from the players. You know, yeah, I, I usually get I usually when I play a game, I get told, John, don't get the GM ideas. Yes, get the GM ideas because sometimes you get a better game. <laughs> yeah, a lot of my players are don't give Trav ideas. No, no, no. Shared world experience helps everyone. Now, you know, they're, they're, they seem to think that I'm like just, you know, oh, what's the, you know, like the meme? Oh, what, Cthulhu and Parver? Oh, yeah, no. But if you're going to sit there and add to the setting, adding to the setting helps everyone out because they can also draw upon that information. What about Fog of War? Okay, what is that? So that's where you don't really know what's going on around you beyond a certain uh, a, a limit because either it's dark or there's smoke or there's noise. And gotcha. you, really, you only have to basically pay attention to a small piece of the overall picture, the fog of war. And so, you know, I not knowing, you know, everything that's out there, you know, yeah. I I think a, a lot of times allows people to be more courageous because they, they don't know how bad it is. Yeah, they don't watch the news and know what and know what the politics are, and then you know, and come time to vote. Yeah, I don't care. Yeah, but, but I'm <laughs> yeah, but that's not really what I'm talking about. That's you know. different different kind of fog of war. Yeah, yeah. no, uh, it's uh, okay. But we are. We're, I'm going to talk about that in a second, actually. So it just seems to me that sometimes not knowing everything, you know, is is actually you know can help you be more courageous. Because you know, you, you, if you don't know, like it's a it's an ancient dragon. It's just a you know, you're, there's a dragon there. Well, okay, I, I you know, we, I've seen dragons. I think we you know, our groups can take it. And so you go and do things because you don't have all the information. It's you're actually able, you know, you, you're able. Your fear doesn't get to the point where it's paralyzing because you don't really know how bad it is. Yeah, that's when you realize the. Past half hour, you've been climbing a mountain. You haven't been climbing a mountain. You've been climbing a dragon. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and that's what they, yeah. Okay, that's wonderful. Uh, and and if that is in fact true, okay, you know, so um, 
So what it would saying, be in my in my old D and D game. It would have been true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so what, what I'm saying here is is that you know uh, in in a, so you're in a scenario. Okay. Uh, uh, I think you know is it a is is that's it's true. If we're trying to be more courageous. Then we don't want the GM to tell us everything. You know about mm-hmm. what we're facing. We want you know uh, um, some of the stuff to be hidden until the very end because that will you know first of all because we'll be getting more powerful because we'll probably be you know leveling up as we go through the adventure but also the fact is that we you know we won't have to tolerate the immensity of the problem you know we only have to see one small problem at a time and work our way through it until we finally are able to do this awesome thing that if you looked at it as a an, as an entirety, you'd say, "Oh no, there's just no way that we ever could be able to pull that off." Uh, yeah, I think a lot of uh, it, it, if it's a investigation game, making sh- make sure you have a lot of red herrings. That you know they're 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 doing a streetwise role. Well, they get a bunch of red herring stuff in the streetwise streetwise role, or if they're doing an investigation, they they pull up. All the conspiracy pages for uh, on on something, and you know one of them is actually true, but you never you, you can never tell, you know. <laughs> but uh, to use the the Lord of the Rings as an example, okay, the hobbits, mm-hmm. the hobbits had one job, which was to get the ring to Mount Doom and throw it in. Okay, yep. they didn't know about you know the 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 big the snake-like flying monsters. Okay, uh, they didn't know Shelob. Okay. They did not know about Shelob. Yeah, they didn't know. They didn't know about the the spider up in the thing. They didn't know about you know the uh, whatever you know trolls and everything else. I mean, they might have heard about them, but they weren't expecting to have to face them. And so all they had to do was put one foot after another and just keep going. Okay, and to, and to basically not let their their reasonable fear overcome them. So mm. you know. I think that you know that by limiting the knowledge that they had as they went along was actually helped them do that. And as a matter of fact, in some cases, I think that intentional ignorance w- mm-hmm. was actually a benefit to them being courageous because yeah. you know it's like don't tell me the odds, <laughs> you know, Han Solo. You know, I don't want to know whether I can. I didn't know. I I didn't know it was impossible before I did it. You know? Oh, I'm I remember reading about the fact that the most courageous person in the Lord of the Rings, at least in the both the novel and the and the movie, wasn't Frodo. It was Ga- Sam Gamgee. Oh yeah. Oh no, that's, that's he was the yeah. most courageous person. Yeah, he was the most courageous person in that group. You know, because uh, he literally, like you said, didn't know what was going on. But he still did his best to do do he, what he thought was right. What, what his old what his old gam what his old uh, gaffer would would t- want him to do, you know. <laughs> yeah, he he had one job: watch out for 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 Frodo. He, yep. he, he didn't care about anything else. He didn't want to know about anything else. <laughs> Mister Frodo, when are we gonna get a good breakfast one of these days, Mister Frodo? Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Um. All right. So uh, also uh, in a lot of games, um, people tend. I think uh, I don't know whether is it, whether it's micromanaging, but they seem to pull back away from ch- a lot of challenges. I think sometimes because they are afraid they're going to use up important stuff. You know, they have if they have a game with a lot of expendables in it. 
uh, they will either, I don't want to use this potion, so uh, or I don't know what I'm going to face ahead because so I'm not going to get totally healed up with these potions. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll wait. And I wonder if sometimes that get, intimidates them as a result. That a system that encourages, you know, that has a lot of replacement stuff for expended items. For example, the the auto healing that they introduced into D and D fourth and fifth edition, where people have the ability to heal themselves. Okay, Does, you know, I I think that would encourage them to be a bit more courageous, a bit more, you know, uh, outside because they they know that they're not just limited to. The, the certain a little bit of healing and whatever the cleric has, you know, in spells. Okay, or if they have this potion of of of, of healing, you know, if if they drink it, then it's not going to be there later on. Okay, so I'm I'm saying that I I think that having a replacement mechanic for expended items allows you to use them more fully and therefore encourages you to push yourself beyond what would otherwise be a fairly conservative behavior. I don't know. Whenever I had healing potions, it was basically having a healing potion. I need to be at full, full hit points to this next, this next thing and glunk them right down. If I used them up, we used them up. Well, you're not, you know? you're not the way I've seen play. Okay. <laughs> I see that. I see I mean, them doing that in tournament play. Uh, that's a, that's a good yeah. tactic in tournament play, but I'm saying in my, in the campaigns that I've been in my entire life, it's always been, well, you know, you're, you're down like, you know, you're, you're like half hit points. Okay. You're okay for now. No, no. What, what I would, what I would hoard would be things like potions of strength or potions of invisibility. Those that hoard, because I, I know I could probably use them, in other situations, you know, of course, I remember having one potion of invincibility, which lasted several sessions because I never had a situation where I thought it was useful to use it mm. at that point, you know. So, yeah. I mean, it, it depends on what it is. I mean, healing potions, you know, no, I got to be at full hit points because, you know, uh, you got to understand, my first three characters died in the in their first session. So I got to the point where, yeah, top of me off because I don't care. <laughs> I'm going to drink up all the healing potions. Heal me. You know, cleric, you know, heal me, you know, hit, hit me, hit me with some healing potions. I mean, I was telling Richard this earlier. My very first D&D character, Dingo the Mad, is still technically resurrectable, even though it's been, what, 30 years, 40 years? I, I feel old now because he was stuffed into a bag of holding. And he's still, therefore, he's still, well, fresh. <laughs> He can be resurrected if we, if I ever if we ever if Richard ever open up his dungeon again, and we go in there and get him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Richard's retired now, so maybe you can bribe him. <laughs> retired, Bruce? Excuse me. <laughs> you're, the I, one, I, I you're the one who said it to me. I didn't say it. I mean, I just repeated it. Richard, when was the last thing you ran your dungeon? When was the last time you ran it? Um, because I know you had, you closed April. it down. You, you closed it down after we leaned the guy against the red button. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever reopen it after that? I don't think so. In fact, I think I see the notebook sitting on the shelf here. <laughs> so yeah, so I can I can imagine this thing is as 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 a post apocalyptic dungeon, 
because it's been you know it was damaged by because Richard had a button that did that would would do things. <laughs> you push it and it would give you antlers. Push it again, gave you fur. Push it again, you get gecko fingers. I'm talking about my character who pushed the button four times and got, you know, gecko fingers, antlers, fur, and a tail. You know? <laughs> yep, and the Some other guy, guy got, who basically stuck the button and everybody ran. Yeah, we leaned him against the button. Remember, he was knocked out, so we just leaned him against the button yeah. and ran. You know? <laughs> and it just it basically transmuted the dungeon. So it's in there. And you know, I'm probably the only person left left around who probably knows that when you go in the dungeon, you need uh, ten pounds of brisket and barbecue sauce for the hellhounds. All right. So, uh, so what I'm, I'm saying here is, is that you know, it, it, uh, a a well uh, is a well equipped party a more courageous party, or is a poorly equipped party a more courageous party? Oh no! Definitely more equipped. You got no. I'd say I'd I'd say the opposite. Being when you're well equipped, you basically oh, I I no problem taking damage. I'll just knock down, hit you know, put on my ring regeneration. I go out there and I can do this all day. I think the poorly equipped ones. I think limitations gives you more chances to do things. You realize, okay, we're all down. I've got I got two hit points. He's got four hit points. We can can we take him out if we rush him? Maybe, you know, no, that I, would lead to, to me to uh, more courageous yeah. role playing. See, I, the, the, I give, I'll bring this back to a previous example I had. You, you said better equipped. Well, if you go in the first time and you get your butts handed to you, you're going to feel a little more courageous. You're going to feel that you can take on this enemy when you've got better armor, better weapons, you know, more spells, more powerful spells. If you are better equipped after a failure, yeah, you're courageous because you feel like, yeah, I can go in and take this guy on because now I got the tools to do the job. So you're oh, beaten, okay. but but not bowed. Yeah. So, so yeah. Trav, let me ask you then, which would be more courageous for Butch Cassidy and Sundance? Being armed with a pair of Gatling guns in, in that last scene or having pistols with three bullets each? Which is more courageous? I think having the three bullets each was more courageous to leap run out of that, out of that hacienda and into the gunfire than popping the doors open and mowing them down with, with Gatling guns. Well, yeah, with the three the the pistols with the three bullets each, yeah, you knew that at the most you could take out six people, but and and you there was greater risk, but you still did it. Not, I don't remember the exact circumstances of everything, but I, but yeah, I would say that in that situation, having the pistols with just a few bullets, yeah, that's courageous. They they did what they had to do despite limited options and limited equipment. I'm just saying with. It, it depends on the situation. Going in, getting beaten down, and come back with better stuff, you do feel more courageous because you realize that, okay, I can take on, we are better equipped, we can do what we have to do. We, we can go in there and beat the bad guy now. Because you beat down your fear because of the fact that you have the better stuff. 
as I said, I, I think it, it could be situational. I'm sure it is situational. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you have plenty of gear, you always have the option. I mean, in some games, you always have the option of nuking it for morbid. Well, let's see, there, there's no there's no risk there. So it's like that, that's... Yeah, that's not what we're talking about. No, no, yeah. I, I'm, just, I'm just simply saying is that if you if you have more gear, okay, or if your gear gets replaced as you move along, then you're not constantly feeling like you are circling the drain as you move forward. You're all beaten and, and busted down, but then you have this big meal. I mean, uh, uh, John Campbell talked about it, where the hero goes, you know, on the on the life of the hero, he goes and he has a big battle and he gets hurt, but then he goes to the place of healing where he gets better, and then and afterwards he's stronger and goes on even after even greater tasks because he's gone through that pro- that uh, as Travel's talking about that that process of of, of battle of loss, but then he's recovered and he's been restored. And now having gone through that, knowing that he could survive that he's able to go and push on to even greater things. We'll use the Avengers. Okay. When after, you know, they got their butts handed to him when the shield helicarrier got attacked, they, you know, Iron Man worked on his armor, you know, Hawkeye got his head right. Him and Black Widow spoke. Captain America got himself together. You know, they all steal themselves. Hulk, uh, new pair of pants. Yeah. Yeah, right. And so they, they, you know, once they, you know, hitched up the bootstraps and pulled themselves up by it, they went in and did what they had to do, knowing that very well they could die. But yeah, that whole go back, collect yourself, lick your wounds, and walk back in, go back swinging... Yeah, there's courage there because, like I said, they realize they clean themselves up, brush themselves, what is it, uh, pick yourself up, dump yourself off, start all over again. You know, the old right. song. When you have the movies where, you know, you, you start off with the guys in boot camp, okay? Those guys in boot camp are not the ones are that are going to, like, be going up against that pillbox I talked about at the beginning of this session. Okay. Oh. It's the guys that they've, that have gone through challenge after challenge have, have been courageous. Those people, not the, not the original guys, but who they become as a result of practicing courage are the ones that are now able to face that pillbox. Well, uh, I will, I will bring up one of the, I think one of the most courageous soldiers, uh, of uh, of is it World War Two? I think I believe it was uh, Sergeant York. World War One. World War One. Yeah, thank you. World War One. Who basically? How many? How many? Did, how many Germans did he take out by himself? How many did he capture by well, himself? Well, he captured about fifty or sixty by uh, by himself. He didn't actually kill very many of them. Yeah, he just had to kill kill enough for for example, for them to realize don't mess with me. Yeah, pretty much. It was like they he was shooting he was shooting them so accurately that they just gave up. They said we, we can't face this guy, and they all gave up. And he ended up bringing yeah. like fifty people, marching them through the trenches. <laughs> I've seen the movie, so you know. I, yeah, I yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, but 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 that's great for a Quaker boy. I mean, yeah. he was a Quaker. You know, and he basically—I would say it was more of his who he was than his training. He was basically a good old Quaker boy who knew how to shoot, and he was in a situation where he knew the only way to stop this is to, you know, put it is to go out there and basically do it himself, be the bravest thing he, you know he ever did in his life, 
And uh, but if you notice, he tried not to kill. He captured instead of kill. So he was holding to his Quaker tenets in that point. In that case, you yeah, know, he, he said he, he was trying to save lives by stopping those machine guns. Yes. Yes, that was that was his point of view. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But do, do you see what I was trying to say about the the journey of the hero? That oh yes, by practicing courage, you're able to then face more challenging things where your uh, courage would be tested even more. Be, but because you have practiced it all along, you know it's something that you actually can draw upon. You're able to face a higher level of fear than you otherwise would have. That does mean there's certain things you use GM can do to help out. I mean, there's certain GM skills. And one thing I would say, like in games like in Bureau 13 or Fringeworthy, is not the, oh, we, we, we're going to save the world again scenarios. Because at that point, you, you're, you're giving them the big, the big meal ticket, the big thing every other game. You want to build up to that save the world and make it the exception rather than the rule. You know, or save the city, or whatever. You know, the, you know, a lot of times you're going to have to give them situations where, especially if you're a 13, you can have situations where it's not save the city. It's basically get rid of the ghost. That's pretty dang. You know, oh, the the uh, cursed dagger could easily turn into a horrendous scenario if it got into the wrong hands. You know, remember the California house? I believe it was Richard. Yeah. Scenario. Yeah. If that if that cursed dagger had gotten into the wrong hands, like a kid. That becomes a heck of a scenario at that point, doesn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, where you have to deal with with someone with a dagger that basically wants more souls. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. You know. All right. So we've talked a lot about the players. Okay, what skills mm-hmm. do the GM need to improve in order to allow more uh, creative, uh, not creative, uh, courageous play in his game or her game? Learning to scale to the characters and their abilities. As far as you need to realize, okay, if I have these level characters, I need to have this level threat to make it where, yeah, it's there's a good chance that they see this threat and they're going to be a little hesitant, but they're still going to go. It's like, we can beat them. We're going to take our lumps, but we can beat them, but we still have to do it anyways. That's, I mean, there are systems that will give you, okay, based on this chart, this is what you should do. It's also a game master eyeballing type thing. And that just comes from experience of running games. Not only running games in general, but knowing the particular players. As I said, I got three different gaming groups, and a few of them are in all three. It's not that they have no lives, it's just they like gaming with me and fine. But <laughs> but you still need to gauge there's enough variation between the three groups. Okay, I know this group, I got to do it this way. This group, I got to do it this way. And, you know, the Sunday group, I got to do it this way. And it's all just, it. it's part art, part science. Yeah. I think it's all, I think also it, part of that is, like you said, learning to scale. Also, you know, if you're st- if it's going to be if you're starting out GM, is is not going gung ho and throwing everything in the book at them because then you they they'll fail. Uh, be happy that you 
underestimated your your players, and therefore it, it was easy. So the first game or two was easy because you're still trying to get one get a gauge for how the game plays, and two get a gauge for how the players play. Because then once you get an idea of what's going on, then you can actually make it just a little bit hard for them and make it harder as needed. Well, also, John, with that, you have to take into account some of the same... I've had some of the same... play. Let's see, in this particular uh, stage of my groups, some of the characters I've... or some of the players I've been playing with for more than five years, so I know how they roll, but every time we start a new campaign, which my campaigns usually last a year and a half to two years, maybe a little longer... You still have to take into account the characters because they have different powers, different abilities, different skills, different um, backgrounds. You have to take that into account each and every time. It's like, yeah, you may know how the players roll, but, oh, let's say player A is now playing a divine caster instead of a rogue. That's a different mix because now you've got a whole new set of variables you have to take into account when gauging power level. I've been running a hero, uh, super, oh, actually, um, mystery men game for the Sunny Skypers. And, uh, both times they very much, you know, clean the, clean the clocks of the villains. And I'm going, okay, I'm, I'm making the villains too easy. So, uh, hopefully this next, next time I run them run them through a, a Harbor city, a scenario that they, they it's going to be difficult for them, you know? And, it, and also I'm thinking of this is not going to be also, we had the problem of we're trying to fit, to a time slot. So typically it's, you know, we got, you know, cause we are recording there. And that's a different situation right there. Uh, try to fit it in within the time, time allotted. In this case, I'm well, warning guys, it may actually be a multi scenario, multi, multi episode scenario just to yeah. get done. Right. <clears throat> so since you've been running this adventure and they basically have been, you know, walking through it and uh, trouncing the villains pretty easily, do you think that they're going to feel, you know, they're going to be a lot more courageous on the next thing you do because they have all these wins behind them? Do you think that's going to make them bolder and more willing to step up to a, a, a challenge, Even, you know, especially if they oh, don't know how yes. tough the next monster is going to be? I should say the next villain is going to be. I mean, yeah, because well, I also bet a game with them too. We we talk about it too. We we actually that's the, that right there is something I do as a GM because we sit back and say, okay, so what you know, we 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 do kind of talk about what worked and what didn't work, and I think that's a good GM skill there. I mean, you know, to, to I would call it meta game. Okay, so we did this, this, and this. Why was it you know was it too easy? So what should I do next time? Uh, to make it more difficult. Uh, the, the second, the second, the second villain they ran into was more difficult uh, for them, and actually, they really had to work to get him to deal with them at that point. So, yeah, it, it improves. So they, they they know the next guy may actually not be all that easy, and the next one after that may not be very easy at all. So it may, you know, yeah, they're basically going up up the grades. Unfortunately, the first person they went against was a A list supervillain. And they trounced his uh, space nuns, <laughs> space nun robots. I'm thinking about uh, the Dungeons & Dragons movie where mm -hmm. pretty much everybody that they ran into, they had no trouble beating okay, and, and, and defeating. But every time Damodar shows up you know, with, with his, uh, pr his purple lips, I mean, he, he just oh, walks, through, he walks in the room and it's over. I mean, no matter what they do, he's going to take them out. 
It happens yep. every single time. So looking at, at that, I'm just you know wondering. Um, you know, it, to me, it, it it didn't seem to change their uh, heroics one way or another. Of course, it is a, a movie, so it might have been scripted that way. But it's. It, they they never you know seem to clue into the fact that every time Damodar shows up you know you need to turn and run because that's of course in the movie snails gets killed and we're all like going run snails run <laughs> no I'm not going to you're not going to you know, poor, you know, poor snail yeah he gets killed and we're like why did you do that <laughs> spoilers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you if you haven't seen the you know the twenty uh, the the ten year old Dungeons and Dragons movie, <laughs> is it ten years or is it? It's at least ten. At least, at least a at least decade. 10. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, I had never seen the second one. I thankful I didn't want to claw my eyes out. Right. Uh, so so having somebody who's absolutely impossible to take out probably isn't going to encourage cor- courageous play because there's no there's no win for them there's no chance of them beating if they're if they use their brains at all they're like well there's no way we're gonna take this guy out so let's not even try you know so and and that may be a good thing because you may want to save that guy for the way further down the line and he shows up every once while to taunt them or to to to, you know to bloody their noses but then somehow they may but after he gets captured, you know, they they manage to escape because nobody else around them is that competent, and so they're able to you know defeat you know the underlings. Okay, right. um, so uh, but again, if we're talking about something where we're 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 trying to have the characters overcome their fear of something, okay, you know, doesn't the narrative have to be really really good? I mean, don't we have to be able to? talk about the situation in a way that, you know, brings out all those fearful elements? Hmm. Because uh, we were already talking about games that actually have stuff built into them. Like, you know, like in Fate, you have a weakness, and that weakness could be arachnophobia or some sort of fear right. that the GM just gives you a Fate point to invoke Right, but does and, and, but, uh, but the, does the GM then have to go and say, "You see, hear this skittering sound, and you see, you know, the black gleaming eyes on the, on the spider." I mean, is it enough? You know, if you just say, I "You see a spider say, yeah. over there," you know, is that going to encourage them to be courageous and and say, "Okay, I'm going to be courageous and run over and attack him anyways," even though I'm fearful? Or is 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 it you know in order? To get the sense of being courageous in there, do we need to actually create a more dramatic narrative? Is that? Do you think that makes that promotes it, or is it just something that just mm-hmm. is, is, is whatever the players want to want to do? No, actually, because you do have the option in the game to well um, refuse to take the compel, but to cost you a fate point. So it does mean eventually, at some point, you may actually run out. But uh, until you run out, you can say no, 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 no. I'm going. I'm facing my fear, and I'm going to go and deal with that horrid, multi-legged freak, and you know, and attack it or whatever, you know. And and it's uh, and it, there's a mechanic there that, that does it, and it also similar similar in Savage Worlds where you have the phobia hindrance, which does have some very specific. Uh, Features that you have to have to do to uh, when it, when it gets invoked, and it's entirely mechanical. But then then you got games that actually don't have that. 
and you still, but it's, in that case, it's really that becomes role playing for the player to play a phobia that actually doesn't actually have any rules for in the game uh, at that point. So, so I, 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 there's good and bad in both the, in both those methods. Uh, done right, the paying the fate point to uh, invoke a invoke a weakness um, can be should should be uh, highly embellished, as so to speak. There should be a lot of descriptions of the, of you know, hundreds of little black feet skittering across the the, the cobblestone floor as you hear them chittering to themselves, you know, and you you feel webbing across your face as you walk down the corridor and you hear them, all above you, chittering yes. on you know, as he as he run around and you know and something drops and lands in your face. And then that's when I give you the fate point. Yeah. The, the, the scariest thing that I've ever seen was when I was about eight years old. And I'd gone out and I'd gotten myself this, um, this chrysalis on a stick. And I brought mm-hmm. it home and I stuck it into a, a vase, you know, and it sat there. And I was waiting for the, 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 the caterpillar, you know, the butterfly to come out. And then. <laughs> And then one time I look over there and the entire table was moving. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a chrysalis. It was a spider egg sac. And there were hundreds of these little buggers crawling everywhere. And I'm not afraid of spiders. Okay. I killed them all. I killed them all the time at that age. Okay. But when I saw this mass of them going everywhere, I, I, I'm sure that I was still a soprano. I shrieked <laughs> and I ran out to the kitchen. And I got the raid. I'm back. You die, And I was just, you know, and I, I just knew I didn't get them all. <laughs> um, that was probably the, the scariest thing that ever happened to me, you know. And it didn't give me arachnophobia, unlike my son who claims to have arachnophobia because he can't, I was playing video games with spiders in them when he was very, very young. And he used to crawl up in my lap and watch the game. And he said that gave him arachnophobia. So. Yeah. Yeah. I was always good with snakes up until a, uh, a famous singer in fandom draped her uh, eight-foot boa around, uh, over my neck. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. took a disliking to me and wrapped straight around my throat. Oh! I dragged seven people into the kitchen and I had a butcher knife in my hand by the time they got the snake off me. And I, I've had a lot of respect for snakes. You know, I, I actually don't like them anymore. <laughs> but I did drag seven people into the kitchen. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, some sometimes there's a trigger point, you know, where you don't have a problem with something until mm-hmm. it gets to a certain size, or it gets to, or or it gets a little too hairy, uh, or it gets, gets something about it, and all of a sudden it's no longer, you know, something that you can deal with. It's it's like cross the threshold, and um, I don't know whether it was courage or just stark fear because I couldn't breathe and I was the world was turning blue. And, uh, and then, you know, at least they got the knife away from me. Yeah. <laughs> Before you started slashing uh, in all directions, yeah. No, I was going for the snake. Well, I know, but still, you know. There was, yeah, I, actually, like there was a lot of snake. My, my parents actually, and, my, and, and the one the babysitter we used to have, we had when I was a really young kid, made a mistake of 
trying to convince you not to go anywhere near the railroad tracks by describing graphically what happens when if you did. And for several years, I could not be anywhere near a railroad track, and I'd be absolutely deathly afraid I was going to die. <laughs> mm-hmm. It took a while for me to get way out of it, though, because these days I'll sit there and watch the train go right on by. Not a problem. But, you know, for a while there as a kid, now, yeah, I hear a train going, I had to leave. I, I just could not be around where a train was coming through. And that's because my parents decided to scare me, and they did a very good job. Well, okay. <laughs> and now you have to face your fears and get on that train to Philadelphia. <laughs> I'd be more worried about my back than about anything else at that point. Because if I'm running coach, I'm going to be, oh, my back. Ah! (laughs) Well, it's good. It's sometimes uh, being able to be distracted, you know, is a good way of, of, of facing your fears, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, or or not facing your fears, basically ignoring your fears, and to, you know, and allow you to do that courageous thing. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, any other thoughts that I haven't covered yet, guys? All right. All right. Yeah. Well, then, thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of the TriTech Games podcast. Uh, we hope that um, you uh, have found this interesting and thoughtful and we hope that we you'll you'll use it to play even more courageous characters than you already are uh or at at least know why you don't want to play courageous characters uh and if you do have this in your game we hope that uh, you'll get some benefit to to do better with it and uh you know and maybe teach some other people how to do it so uh we're gonna have uh more for you next week but until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Richard Tohoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.